This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear not one but two stories, Love by Grace Paley and The Wretched Seventies by Barry Hanna. Ned Maxey had stared out a window, weeping, fasting, and praying in his way. In character of both the drunkard and the penitent, he had watched life across the street. The stories this month were chosen by George Saunders, whose own stories have been appearing in the magazine since 1992. His latest collection, 10th of December, is now out in paperback. Welcome back to the podcast, George. Nice to be here, Deborah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now last time that you were on the program, seven years ago, you read an Isaac Babel story called You Must Know Everything. This time you're reading these two very short, more recent stories by Grace Paley and Barry Hanna. Grace Paley's story is from 1979, Barry Hanna's is from 1996. Why these two pieces and why talk about them together? We're at the sort of beginning of a semester up here at Syracuse, and I always like to kind of almost like reboot my whole understanding of the story form, like just forget everything I was thinking last year and start fresh. And so one way to do that is just to start with the simple, short, one-page examples, kind of the form at its purest. And these two struck me as being really wonderful in that they're they're silly and they're funny, and they're also completely valid short stories in their own right. So I was kind of just getting back into the teaching mode a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, both of these stories are right around a thousand words. I haven't counted them up. Do you think it's easier to write a thousand-word story than a, a 10,000-word story, or is it harder? I think it's impossible. I, I've only <laughs> written one that was this short. And, it, it, you know, it really does. I mean, it's not so hard to write a thousand words, and it's certainly not hard to write a thousand-word anecdote. But the more I looked at these, you can see that they fulfill all the needs of a story. They do everything that a 10,000-word story would do, but just do it faster. So it's an incredibly beautiful little poetic form. Less reading for you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you can read them. You know, read it once, and then you're back to your life. <laughs> Have Grace Paley and Barry Hanna been models for you as a writer in yeah, general? Yeah, very much. I met both of them, so there was something wonderful about getting to know them and then feeling the way that their actual personhood made it into their stories. You know, when I read these two writers, I'm kind of reminded that charm is a lot of the game. You know, verbal charm, the charm of sort of alertness and and being an open to the world. You know, sometimes when you're studying stories, or I guess when you're trying to write them, for me, it's easy to become overly analytical and think that if you just do A, B, and C correct, you'll have a story. But these writers, in all that they do, it kind of reminds you that a lot of the way that a reader moves through the story is just by being drawn in by voice. And that voice can be almost anything as long as there's a human being behind it. And I think, you know, Paley and Hannah both have that in everything they do. Do you think these voices have something in common or are they very different? I think the playfulness is what I noticed. You know, you, on the first read, you kind of think, wow, that must have been so easy. It's almost like in both cases, you feel the mind just kind of going where it will, kind of pleasurably. And what I found sort of amazing on a second, third, fourth read is that even though it's, they seem so casual and almost just dashed off, they're doing really interesting structural and formal things. And that's what sort of gives such a short piece lift. I don't know quite how they did it, but but it's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about how they did it after after we hear the stories. Um, I hope we'll figure it out because then it would be it would make <laughs> writing a lot more fun. <laughs> we'll talk more after the story. And now here's George Saunders reading "Love" by Grace Paley. First, I wrote this poem. Walking up the slate path of the college park, under the nearly full moon, the brown oak leaves are red as maples. 
and I have been looking at the young people. They speak and embrace one another. Because of them, I thought I would descend into remembering love. So I let myself down, hand over hand, until my feet touched the earth of the gardens of Vesey Street. I told my husband, I've just written a poem about love. What a good idea, he said. Then he told me about Sally Johnson on Lake Winnipesaukee, who was 12 and a half when he was 14. Then he told me about Rosemary Johansson on Lake Sunapi. Then he told me about Jane Marston in Concord High. And then he told me about Mary Smythe of Radcliffe when he was a poet at Harvard. Then he told me about two famous poets, one fair and one dark, both now dead, when he was a secret poet working in an acceptable trade in an office without windows. When at last he came to my time, that is the past 15 years or so, he told me about Dottie Wasserman. Hold on, I said, what do you mean Dottie Wasserman? She's a character in a book. She's not even a person. Okay, he said. And why Vesey Street? What's that? Well, it's nothing special. I used to be in love with a guy who was a shrub buyer. Vesey Street was the downtown garden center of the city when the city still had wonderful centers of commerce. I used to walk the kids there when they were little carriage babies half asleep, maybe take the ferry to Hoboken. Years later, I'd bike down there Sundays, ride round and round. I even saw him about three times. No kidding, said my husband. How come I don't know the guy? Ugh, the stupidity of the beloved. It's you, I said. Anyway, what's this baloney about you and Dottie Wasserman? Nothing much. She was this crazy kid who hung around the bars. But she didn't drink. Really, it was for the men, you know. Neither did I drink too much, I mean. I was just hoping to get laid once in a while or maybe meet someone and fall madly in love. He is that romantic. Sometimes I wonder if loving me in this homey life in middle age with two sets of bedroom slippers, one a skin of sandal for summer, and the other pair lined with cozy sheepskin, it must be a disappointing experience for him. He made a polite bridge over my conjectures. He said, she was also this funny mother in the park years later when we were all doing that municipal politics and I was married to Josephine. Dottie and I were both delegates to that famous Kansas City National Meeting of Town Meetings. NMTM, remember? Some woman. No, I said, that's not true. She was made up, just plain invented in the late 50s. Oh, he said. Then it was after that. I must have met her afterward. He is stubborn, so I dropped the subject and went to get the groceries. Our shrinking family requires more coffee, more eggs, more cheese, less butter, less meat, less orange juice, more grapefruit. Walking along the street, encountering no neighbor, I hummed a little up-and-down tune and continued jostling time with the help of my nice reconnoitering brain. Here I was, experiencing the old earth of Vesey Street, breathing in and out with more attention to the process than is usual in the late morning, all because of love, probably. How interesting the way it glides to solid invented figures from true remembered wraiths. By God, I thought, the lover is real. The heart of the lover continues. It has been propagandized from birth. I passed our local bookstore, which was doing well with the joy of all sex underpinning its prosperity. The owner gave me, a dependable customer of poorly advertised books, an affectionate smile. He was a great success. He didn't know that three years later his rent would be tripled, he would become a sad failure, and the landlord, feeling himself brilliant, an outwitting entrepreneur, a star in the microeconomic heavens, would be the famous success. From half a block away I could see the kale in the grocer's bin, crumbles of ice shining the dark leaves. In interior counter view I imagined my husband's northern country fields, 
the late autumn frost and the curly green, I began to mumble a new poem. In the grocer's bin, the green kale shines. In a north country, it stands sweet with frost, dark and curly in a garden of tan hay and light white snow. Light white? I said that a couple of questioning times. Suddenly, my outside eyes saw a fine-looking woman named Margaret, who hadn't spoken to me in two years. We'd had many years of political agreement before some matters relating to the Soviet Union separated us. In the angry months during which we were both right in many ways, she took away with her, to her political position and daily friendship, my own best friend, Louise. My lifelong park, PTA, and anti-war movement sister, Louise. In a hazy litter of love and leafy green vegetables, I saw Margaret's good face, and before I remembered our serious difference, I smiled. At the same moment, she knew me and smiled. So foolish is the true love when responded to that I took her hand as we passed, bent to it, pressed it to my cheek, and touched it with my lips. I described all this to my husband at supper time. He was happy to explain everything. The smile was for Margaret, he said, but you know you miss Louise a lot, and the kiss was for Louise. We both said, ah. Then we talked about the way the SALT treaty looked more like a floor than a ceiling, read a poem written by one of his daughters, looked at a TV show telling the destruction of the European textile industry, and made love. In the morning, he said, you're some lover, you know. He said, you really are. You remind me a lot of Dottie Wasserman. That was Love by Grace Paley, which appeared in The New Yorker in 1979 and is in Paley's Collected Stories, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. So, George, Dottie Wasserman was a character in a Grace Paley story. Right. The contest, which was written in the late 50s, as the wife says in this story. She's not a girl who hangs out in bars. She's not a funny mother in the park. So what is this husband doing? Right. And it's also what is Grace Paley doing? Because I'm not sure. I mean, if we only looked at the evidence of the story... I don't think the story quite lands as well as it does if you've read The Contest, which is a little masterpiece, I think. So I'm not sure how she worked up the guts to do it. But the way I read this is, okay, in The Contest, Dottie Wasserman is kind of – I found her really wonderful. I kind of fell in love with that character. And her Mm -hmm. role is to try to convince the narrator, who's named Fred, that she's the love of his life. And you can sort of feel that she is. You know, she gets him. He's kind of a player. He's kind of a 1970s style player. You can almost see the platform souls in the story. She sort of says to him, you're better than this. You know, you can do something with your life and I'm going to be part of that. And the brilliance of that story is he just doesn't get it. And he just kind of cruelly turns his back on her. So now we bring that Dottie into this story. And I guess we assume that the husband would know very well who Dottie Wasserman was in that story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd like to get your take on it. My feeling is that somehow... He's paying his wife a compliment by saying, when I met you, I met Dottie Wasserman. And unlike that dope in the other story, <laughs> you know, I knew. I didn't let you go. That's right. I knew what you were and I took you. So that's why she says he is that romantic. Is that, is that how you read it? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because I think that something's going on in this story in which both the husband and the wife are, they're fictionalizing each other because Grace Paley's actual husband, I think, was at some point a, maybe a landscape architect, something like that. And so she's turned him and her poem into this garden worker. It's not a huge leap. And then he takes Grace Paley and turns her into this Dottie Wasserman, who is a political mother in the park. They're both slightly distancing themselves or telling stories about each other that are slightly fictionalized. Yeah, yeah. 
um, there's that. But then Dottie Wasserman is in the Grace Paley story, the one who got away. Right. She's not the one who got married. So I had the thought too. You know, at the end, when I got to the end, I had this feeling that this, and, and I think it was inspired by this line where she says, "How interesting the way it glides to solid invented figures from true remembered race." Yeah. This is the beautiful thing about stories. It it made this thought in my mind. I'm not sure if anyone else would have it, but this notion that before we before we meet the person that we love, we have a sort of platonic idea of who we we might love. And it can be anything from, you know, kind of a vague picture to some attributes to something much more subtle and detailed. And then when we meet the person that we end up loving, they might it might not be a perfect match, but you feel some connection between those those two things Mm -hmm. then if you're a mature functional person the real (laughs) the real being takes over all the the job of the beloved but that at certain high moments in your relationship that ideal comes back and almost inhabits the the person so to me at the end when they have that nice little domestic evening and then they make love and he says you're a lot like Dottie Wasserman (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I think it's very high praise. He's kind of saying, you remind, you know, you remind me one of the, the person you were when I fell in love with you. And maybe he's saying, you know, in my model, you remind me of the person I always wanted to find before I found you, something like that. So I, it's really, a, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. And then, of course, he is that bit with Margaret and, and Louise. It's not, it's not as good a story without that in there. Um, well, now, what, what are Margaret and Louise doing in this story? You know, I don't know how you think about it, but I always feel like when someone, when that kind of question is asked, an answer arises. But what I like to do is pause just for a second and almost in my mind, imagine the story without that thing and then with it, without it and with it. And really the answer to that question is the the different resonances that come off the story with or without that component. Then you can try to articulate it. And so for me, it's something like, she says earlier, by God, the lover is real. And I think for me that this section kind of exists to prove that. Like, and also to sort of broaden the definition of love, it's, it's not just romantic. So here she sees Margaret, Margaret's good face. And then before she even knows what she's doing, she's smiled. And she says, that so foolish is the true love when responded to. So she had a moment of spontaneous affection for Margaret. Margaret saw that and responded so for me, it's something like that. I don't know. How, how, do you, how do you feel that? It's a story called love. So she's bringing in many different kinds of love and forms of love. It's interesting to me that the time she uses the, the phrase true love is about the love between women friends. Right, right. And not the love with the husband. It's also cool the way that just in terms of cause and effect, that's right before their lovely evening together or their sort of mundane evening yeah. together. And it kind of somehow it powers it. You know, she comes home from this day having sort of patched this up. He explains it in this very clever way. The other thing I love about this story is it's a representation of functionality, an actual working marriage and the, the actual and the, and the pleasures, mm-hmm. you know, there. And, and that's actually hard to do. It's, it's hard to do without being sappy. And, and then the other part that always strikes me is the bookstore stuff, which, you know, I'm always thinking, can something come out of one of my stories? Is this just here because I typed it? And that, I think that bookstore bit, you know, about the uh, successful bookstore owner who goes down the tubes is also somehow essential. And it, it does that, that continuing work of broadening the idea of love. And to me, what it does, is it says it's all very conditional, that these things that feel like love can be reversed. And in fact, it sounds like this husband and wife have both been married before and have kids with other people. So somehow that bookstore adds in that extra element of kind of, you know, impermanence and, and sort of potential tragedy that 
also is, you know, part of love. Right. That what you think is is success can three years later be total failure. Right, right. It's all kind of on, on thin ice. I also loved that the bookstore is making its living with the joy of all sex. Yeah, no, is that, <laughs> not do you even think just the she, joy of sex. It's the joy of all sex. Do you think she changed that for legal reasons or is that just a joke? I don't know. I don't know. It's very yeah, funny. I, it is funny. I mean, there's no reason she couldn't use the real name of the book. Yeah. So uh, it must be, it must have been to make a joke, you right. know, that we're talking about all love here. We're talking about yeah. all kinds. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we should go to Barry Hanna's story now. Okay. Is there anything that you think that you should warn people about? Or? Well, just, just imagine that this Chicago accent is actually a Southern accent, very genteel. <laughs> okay. Now here's George Saunders reading The Wretched Seventies by Barry Hanna. Many, too many days. Ned Maxey had stared out a window, weeping, fasting, and praying in his way. In character of both the drunkard and the penitent, he had watched life across the street. Now, in a healthier time, arising to his work at early hours, he labored at his front window table, peering out on occasion at a world that spoke back to him. Not loudly and not a lot, but some. Over the whiteboard fence he'd just painted, and through the leaping wide leaves of his muscadine arbor, he spied shyly like a stranger in town. The satisfaction of this almost frightened him. The woman in a uniform who left every morning at a quarter to eight was a paramedic. In the awful 70s, Maxie had sworn to hundreds in saloons that he wanted most of all to be a paramedic. This was a bogus piety to support his drinking. But here was the real thing. Maxie did not know the paramedic woman, but he watched her through a pair of opera glasses he had bought at a hot springs pawn shop from a man who had also been broken in the 70s and who now sat with his crutches beside him and lit up unfiltered luckies that made him wretch. In his late 40s, the lifetime monster of lust had released him, first time since he was 11, just as the monster of drink had released him four years ago. He still did not know precisely what accounted for it, but it was a deep, lucky thing now that he was able to see the woman paramedic across the street leaving for work and comprehend that she could be happy without him. He looked on in high admiration, goodwill, and with no panic. She was engaged to a wide man with a crew cut who came out with her to the doorway on his big white legs in Bermuda shorts and embraced her, seeing his love off in the cool of the morning. Maxie applauded their love. He had been in love this way twice in his life. He recalled the stupid rapture and had no advice for them at all. He had spoken to the woman only once, told her she looked good in her uniform, all ready to fly away in a helicopter in her high-top black leather sneakers. She had the voice of a country girl, the kind of girl who had soothed his old man dying in the hospital at age 87. The old fellow had got rich in the city but loved the country much better, and the nurse was a sweet comfort at the last. Maxie liked that this country girl had the moxie to fly in a machine that would have terrified many hillbillies, and he told her so. Even from a hundred yards he could see her go shy, having an unexpected compliment sail out to her from a man who didn't need anything. Here in the late cool of a summer morning, her head of blonde hair lowered to look at her own eminent bosom, of which she was no longer required to dream in impossible lechery. She answered some way he couldn't make out, in a whisper, a country whisper of thanks, good beyond form. This whole exchange would not have been possible even three months ago, when, in his mind, he would have been teaching her the needs of his famished world, her body a naked whirlwind of willing orifices, as he smiled at her all the while like the Prince of Liars. The whisper had fetched back for him his old mighty friend Drum, lately a suicide. 
Drum was a practicing Christian, one of maybe four selfless men Ned Maxey had known in life, brought low by pain and anxiety after a heart attack. He was cut off from good work and high spirits and could not go on, they said. Drum was the only whispering drunkard Maxey knew. Through all the thundering 70s, he had never raised his voice. He killed himself in the bathroom of a double-wide mobile home he rented from a preacher who lamented to the police, Now poor Drum can't ever go to heaven. But he had been tidy there in the bathtub with the large-caliber pistol. Much appreciated. His drinking buddy Drum's whispers of encouragement his pleading to Maxie that he was a man who must respect himself, that he must work hard, that he must not waste the precious days or the gifts poured on him by nature. Ned Maxie would take that whisper with him until his own heart stopped too, and he knew this. The whisper of the paramedic country girl was there for him now. He did not want to make too much out of it. Thousands must have been given this gift. He didn't want to be only another kind of fool, a sort of peeping Tom of charity. But he was a new fool. Some big quiet thing had fallen down and locked into place like a whisper of some weight. Ned Maxey had been granted contact with paradise, and he could hardly believe the lack of noise. His awful 70s decade had gone past 20 years. Finally, it was over. The next day, Maxey, in a daze, got his rush suit out of the cleaners and attended the wedding of the woman paramedic at a country church down between Water Valley and Coffeyville. He shook hands with the bride and groom, then stood out of the pounding heat under the shade of a tall, brothering sycamore. Nobody ever figured out quite who he was. Their faces were full of baffled felicity, as if each one was whispering, Well, howdy, stranger, I guess. That was The Wretched Seventies by Barry Hanna, which appeared in The New Yorker in 1996 and was published in a slightly different version with the title Ned Maxey, He Watching You, in Hanna's collection High Lonesome, which is available in paperback from Grove Press. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. 
Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. So, George, both of these stories are about love and memories of love. And this idea maybe of emotion that's sort of recollected in tranquility and from this position where you've got two pairs of slippers and you're free of the monster of lust. Are they elegies to love? Is there an elegiac tone in both of these stories? Well, this one, I, I certainly feel it. I think one of the reasons this story spoke to me is that, you know, at its heart, it's sort of a recounting of, of a reform. He's born again. He's not a drunk and he's a new man. And it struck me how many stories are actually about that. That's kind of a, a central trope of literature, the, the transformation story. But it's awfully hard to do that in a convincing way, you know, to, to make a character who is A at the beginning of the story, and then by the end, he's supposed to change to Z. So I, I think what drew me to this one was there's a passage in the middle of the story. You know, he sees this, the paramedic out, out the window, and mm-hmm. he says that he applauds their love. And he's earlier claimed that, his, that lust, the monster of lust, has released him, which is, that's always a good thing when that happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And so then he says, now, he says he'd spoken to the woman only once. He tells us that he shouts out this compliment. When you go back and recreate the compliment, it's kind of weird. It's, it sounds like he says something like, you know, hey, you look great in that uniform. You know, like you're all ready to fly away in a helicopter or something, which surprises me that a hillbilly like you would have enough courage to do that. You know, I, 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 know <laughs> I don't he's think he says tra- that part aloud. <laughs> yeah, well, he, well, I think he does, actually, because he says, told her she looked good in her uniform and so on. And then also uh, the thing about the hillbillies and, and he told her so. So I figure this guy is pretty charming, but it doesn't sound like, you know, if you're just walking out to your paramedic job in the cool of the morning and somebody shouts out, hey, darling, you look good in that uniform, you know, you're pretty brave for a hillbilly or whatever he says. And then, you know, then the narrator, who I'm now reading a little unreliably, says uh, even from 100 yards, he could see her go shy. Well, and then he goes on to have this sort of sexual fantasy which he says is no longer a sexual fantasy of his, although he's describing it in pretty good detail. So what, what, what I loved about this was that we are convinced that he's changed because, one, he doesn't, you know, like follow her out to her car. And then, two, later at the wedding, he seems to behave relatively well. But he, the, the man that he was isn't totally vanished because it's evident in the nature of this compliment and maybe in his misreading of her reaction to it and then in this sort of detailed, you know, fantasy of what he would do with her if luckily or, or he hadn't he been... Or ex- what he would imagine doing with her. What he would imagine <laughs> and what he is right now imagining. You know, so it's kind of complicated. He's not, it's not like he's suddenly become a perfect, pure being. Something has changed, but he's still basically that guy, but something has been lifted from him. He says it's lust. I'm not quite sure that it's, it's lust that's been... Lifted, But that, that sort of the middle paragraph or the middle column of the story really convinced me and, and moved mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in, in that the change ostensibly has happened before the story begins. Right. So we're not really witnessing the change ourselves. But, but it, it seems to me there's a slightly 
a morally ambivalent feeling about the change itself. I mean, he's gone from being a man of action in a way, even mm -hmm. if it's bogus piety or whatever he calls it. He's gone from being someone who was out there in the world to being someone who sits at his table with binoculars spying yeah, yeah, that's on exactly the neighbors right. and who doesn't, aside from showing up at this wedding, doesn't seem to be performing in the outside world. And in a way has become a writer. He's sitting at his front window looking with binoculars right. <laughs> at the world that's one of the and job noting requirements. it down. So it's not clear to me which of these things Barry Hanna thinks is superior to the other. You know? Well, I, you know, you're exactly right. I think that's the power of the story is I think he's not sure and I think we're not sure. It's almost like it's a real a genuine trade-off. You know, he, it's probably good that he's not drinking. It's probably good that he's subdued and yet there is sort of a kind of neutered quality to him. And the other thing that I think hovers over the story and makes it kind of animated is that we're not sure, one, if he's telling the truth and or how genuine this conversion is. When she walks out, I the first time I read it, I had a bit of feeling like, oh, he's going to kind of blow it. He's going to lose his cool. And I had the same feeling when the, even at, at the very word wedding in that second to last paragraph that this is where, if this is a, uh, a false conversion, it's going to be outed. But in within the body of the story, it doesn't. But I think that's one of the ways he keeps the tension going is if someone says, hey, I haven't had a drink in six weeks. You're like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, why why does Ned Maxey go to this wedding? Well, right. This kind of fits what I, with what I was just saying because actually it's kind of a – I mean I read it as kind of a, a caddish thing to do. I don't think he's invited for no, one. He's definitely not invited. But it, he, right. I think the idea is maybe to, to pay tribute to the love of this young couple that he's witnessed. But Right, which is kind of a narcissistic <laughs> idea. You know, that, that, I mean if a stranger shows up at your wedding – you know, it's a bit it's a bit akin to him shouting that compliment yeah. out. And so in a sense, you know, he's the same guy. Like before he – there's a great line about he was able to see or comprehend that the woman could be happy without him, which is like one of the most beautiful little statements of, of male hubris, you know, ever. So – but then he's still enough of a dude to shout out a compliment as if that's yeah. a nice thing, you know, as if she'll appreciate it. And also enough of a dude to show up at the wedding uninvited. Uh, so I think, in, you know, he's a lot of his negative qualities are still in place, but it's almost like the animating spark has been taken away. And I guess mechanically you say, well, he stopped drinking. That's why. But but uh, it's not like he's a totally different guy. He, he's he, he's seen the light, but the light has only hit part of him sort of like that, maybe. Yeah. Well, to me, the most mysterious lines in this story are, are the ones where he says, you know, some big quiet thing had fallen down and locked into place. Yeah. He'd been granted contact with paradise. What what paradise? You know, when I read that line, I I went back to this kind of strange line. He says he's now able to look on that woman in high admiration, goodwill, and with no panic. And that that's a funny mm -hmm. line because he said he's been released from lust, but panic and lust... You know, I don't think they necessarily go together. Uh, when I hear that, no panic, what it says to me is in the past, when he would see a beautiful woman, he would have this urge to act, this sort of panic, this sort of m manic activity energy, which is not actually lost at all. It's something else. It's, you know, compensatory or, and I kind of read it as a feeling of wanting to be over-involved in the lives of others, which then again, that's the compliment is a form of that. So then I, when I hear later about paradise and quiet, I think about that feeling of panic, kind of like whatever state he was in before this, it had to do with 
with panic and sort of a noisiness, like a noisiness in his head and in his, in his desires. And that's actually what's receded. Yeah. So the paradise is kind of the fact that he can sit there quietly or relatively quietly and not feel compelled to inject himself into everything. Although, and this I think is where the story gets really interesting, he does actually inject himself yeah, into her mourning and also into her wedding. And he does it somewhat mm, less harmfully, I guess. Is, is the, <laughs> yeah, that's, sort of, that's sort of the nature of the conversion. So it's really interesting. You know, it's very true, I think, true to what conversion or what uh, transformation actually can be for an individual, not only a, you know, a drinker, but any of us, that when we transform, it's not like you can leave all your baggage at the station. You, maybe you fill it up with different stuff or you carry it a little differently, but a convincing literary transformation, like, for example, Scrooge, when Scrooge is you know, up the next morning ordering turkeys for people, he's using his, his energy of commerce that he's always had. You know, he's right. using his intensity and... So he doesn't really completely morph into some totally different person, but he just takes his train and puts it on a better set of tracks. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. In the in the version of this story that was in High Lonesome, there's one more line there. Um, mm. After he'd been granted contact with Paradise, it says something tired and battered and loud had just thrown in the towel. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Is it lust that's thrown in the towel? Is it just that he's settled? He doesn't have that panic. Yeah. It's been battered, whatever it was. Yeah. And he's referred to twice as a stranger, which is interesting yeah. to me. You know, he's spying on, on the neighbors like a stranger in town, as though strangers in town get out their binoculars and spy on you. <laughs> you know? Well, that's how they get to know people. Like yeah. <laughs> and at the end, he's a strange. you know, the last line is, hello, stranger. It's maybe just about him becoming a stranger to himself in a way. Or And there's that line, the line that really looms largest when he says, uh, peering out on occasion at a world that spoke back to him, not loudly and not a lot, but some, mm-hmm. as you know, and then we... We assume that the world before this conversion was never talking back to him. He's just a or he wasn't listening. Yeah. yeah, are you right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing that's that's interesting to me in both of these stories, there's a lost friend who plays a big role. Mm. You know, Louise has been lost to the narrator in the Paley story, and here Ned Maxey has lost Drum. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder what you think Drum's suicide is doing in this story. Like whether it was a warning to him, whether it was a wake-up call? Well, I suppose, you know, in a story this short, it kind of exists as this is where he was headed, uh, like a kind of underscoring the seriousness of the level of alcoholism that this guy was involved in. That You know, they weren't just having a couple of beers. This was like a, a real kind of road-to-hell deal. Yeah. With Barry Hanna, I didn't know him very well, but I know his... This, I mean, this is basically, I suppose, his story. You know, he had a real uh, kind of wild period and then followed by a very... Mm-hmm tranquil period and i love the way that in a story that's kind of comic and funny and gets a lot of fun out of ned being a little you know a little too much when he gets to that line of drum's advice it's a really interesting escalation you know his pleading to max that he was a man who must respect himself that he must work hard that he must not waste the precious days or gifts if i imagine this story as a shape it's sort of all kind of bright yellow and jangly and that advice is kind of like a high part that's a little white you know it's kind of beautifully earned. Well, I think also both these friends give us a just a switch away to a different kind of love. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. friendship love that you don't... He doesn't have to feel lust with Drum, and yet Drum can actually show him love. Yeah. And he can yeah. feel it there. So right. maybe that's part of what quiets that, uh, that loud, battered thing. And also, you know, you can kind of feel that if he can have that kind of a relationship with Drum, he comes up a bit in your opinion at that point, you know? That's, mm-hmm. uh, 
Yeah, that's a nice reading of that. Well, another thing that both stories do is the way they jump around in time. You know, reading both of them, I felt like it was sort of like watching a hummingbird go in and out of flowers. Mm. You know, they just touch into a moment in the past, they come back. They touch in, they come back. How do you do that so much in a thousand words? It's yeah, I, or maybe, crazy. you know, I, I'm, it takes such confidence, I think. And, I, and I'm actually not, I don't, I suppose it takes some living too. You know, you can feel in that Grace Paley story. I think it's, it sounds fairly close to life. And, you know, I suppose in some ways in a thousand, thousand words, maybe you'd feel the need for that more keenly because you just, you know, the, that white space is coming up at the end. And, uh, <laughs> do you think they <laughs> knew? This is, do you think they knew when they started writing it was going to be that length? I wish I knew. I really wish I knew that. You you probably would know that more than we would. How did they do it? <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> uh, these stories predate me. But yeah, it's interesting. I know I know in your experience that often you sit down with an idea that you're writing something of a certain length and you it ends up being a story instead of a novel or a novel instead of a story. You know, it, it becomes something other than what you imagined. Yeah, almost always the first thing. It, it's going to yeah. be a novel, and it becomes. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's very it's very much kind of trying to suss out the DNA of the story and see, you know, what it'll tolerate. Basically, I had one short one called Sticks that I wrote in an afternoon at work many years ago, and that and I I do remember that that day I said, you know, I was stuck in some other story, and I thought I just want to write a one page story that I can publish, you know, and so that was started with the intention of it being very very quick, you know, and. Like when you know it's going to be a page, certain other muscles get enacted, like fast twitch muscles get enacted. So where, where normally you might say, well, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'll go with some exposition. You just say, no, I do know what's going to happen here. And you kind of mm -hmm. drive through. And I have a feeling that that might prompt one to jump out of time a little bit. Just because, you know, you, you see that end of the story rushing up. There's some rhetorical valence that you need to provide a counterweight well, you can't get in real time, so you have to reach back or forward. But it, when someone does it, it's beautifully, like when Paley, when she goes ahead to that bookstore, yeah. thing, it's so satisfying. It's, it's something. Yeah. Like, the narrator in the Paley even says, you know, she's jostling time with her, with her reconnoitering mind. And then, yeah, you know, they yeah. play it really loose with time. It's like Ned Maxey's decade that went on for 20 years, you know. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah. maybe, and maybe writing at this length just gives you a freedom. You, you can dip into a past flashback and you don't have to play it out. You can just say, I'm just going to refer to it. People always say that, you know, the author is God. And I don't buy that, except I think sometimes when I'm reading a wonderful writer like these, you kind of think, you're kind of asking the, the writer, will you please tell me how God actually thinks of us? There's something about that moving back and forth in time. It's almost like the writer saying, okay, let's cut to the chase here. I know you live every day and you're so confused. Let me tell you how it looks from heaven, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I think we appreciate that. I, I, I know I do. Thank you so much, George. Thank you. What happens when iconic filmmaker David Cronenberg writes a novel? It leaves readers riveted and consumed. Consumed, the eye-opening thriller not for the faint-hearted, as troubling, sinister, and as enthralling as his films, says Stephen King. Consumed, a frightening, thrilling, shocking story about the nexus of the spirit and the flesh, says J.J. Abrams. Consumed, featuring geopolitics, 3D printing, the Cannes Film Festival, and sex in an incredible number of varieties. Consumed, an astonishing, seamless continuation of Cronenberg's novelistic film oeuvre, Bruce Wagner. Consumed by David Cronenberg. Buy your copy today. George Saunders' latest story collection is 10th of December. His nonfiction book, Congratulations, by the way, Some Thoughts on Kindness, came out earlier this year. There are more than 85 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store, 
including one in which George Saunders reads a story by Isaac Babel, and another where Joshua Ferris reads a George Saunders story. All day that look was in my mind, that look of hate. And I thought, if that was me, if I had that hate level, what would I do? You can hear even more stories read by the authors on The New Yorker's website and on the magazine's app for tablets and smartphones. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.